0: at the cross of Christ, the full weight of the curse falls upon a single man. Uh, The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The idea of a curse for us as modern people Um, we don't have much imagination for it. When we think of curses, we think magic. We think witches and wizards and Harry Potter, right? Curses are things of fairy tales and primitive religion and make-believe. And yet, as much as we um, understand the world, seek to control the world, think we know how things are going to go in history, it seems as if there's always, though, bad things that happen, things that elude our grasp. War, natural disasters, breakdown of relationships, disease, death. We cannot seem to escape the tragic character of life. The world does not work as we think it should, how we, as we expect it to work, right? Right? And we never seem to be able to get used to this fact. We never seem to be able to become uh, normalized to tragedy. Even though if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that life is tragic. And that bad things will happen. This, brothers and sisters, is what life under the curse means. The tragic character of life is because of the curse. Since the time of Adam and Eve, when they were expelled from the Garden of Eden, all of creation, humans, nature, animal life, everything has been under a curse and exists in the shadow of the curse. The curse is not necessarily a consequence to specific sins that people commit, but the curse is really a consequence of an original sin, under which all of life now is shadowed. That in that disobedience from the original sin was unleashed into the world, the reality of evil and sin and death. Now, instead of thinking about the curse in terms of a magical spell or a hex, I think perhaps a better metaphor is to think about the curse as something more like the fallout that happens after a nuclear disaster you think about radiation, nuclear radiation, it is an invisible presence that pervades all things that ultimately leads to death and decay and malfunction. Uh, in her book, Voices of Chernobyl, uh, Svetlana Aleksevich uh, records the stories of, their oral stories of people who were uh, living around the area when um, the disaster took place. And so she collects all these stories, Um, from within ten years of the disaster. Uh, Chernobyl, as many of you may remember or have learned, uh, happened in 1986 on April 13th. It is considered the worst nuclear disaster in history, Um, and the fallout is still being felt today. And this idea of fallout seems to be a fitting metaphor as we think about the reality of the curse. In Chernobyl, even to this day, there's a place that's called the Exclusion Zone. And it is a 20-mile radius surrounding uh, the nuclear reactor that blew up. And it's considered that no, no place is safe within this 20-mile radius because of the radiation, the high levels of radiation. And yet, um, even during the disaster and even to the day, if you were to look in that re- Exclusion Zone, everything looks normal. Everything looks natural. And uh, uh, Alexevich, she records a story of, of a man who, um, while the disaster was happening, was in that area, describing his experience. And uh, I'll read what, what uh, he says. He said, I started filming apple trees in blossom and bloom. The bumblebees are buzzing and everything is bridal white. Again, people are working, the gardens are in bloom, and I'm holding the camera in my hands But I don't understand it, this isn't right. The exposure is normal, the picture is pretty, but there's something not right. And then it hits me, I don't smell anything. The garden is blooming, but there's no smell. I later learned that sometimes the body reacts to high doses of radiation by blocking the function of certain organs. And I asked others, there were three of us, how do the apple trees smell? They don't smell anything. Something was happening to us. The lilacs didn't smell lilacs. I got the sense that everything around me was fake, that I was on a film set and that I couldn't understand it. Everything seems to be completely normal, but something's not right. I think this captures the reality of the curse. when we look, everything seems normal, but there's something off. There's something that's not right. There's this invisible contaminant that makes its way, its presence known eventually by corruption and death. Now there are many layers to the curse in the Bible, but the one I want to draw your attention to for Good Friday is the origin of the curse and its association with the judgment of God upon the human race because of disobedience. See, radiation is an invisible presence that corrupts and kills things. But the curse stems not from the presence of something deadly, but actually from an absence. It's not about the presence of something, it's about the absence of something. And the absence is the presence of God. You know, when God uh, gives the curses in Genesis, He's not casting a, a, a spell on creation. What he's doing simply is he is withdrawing. He's withdrawing his life-giving presence from humanity, from creation. Surely God is still always present as creator, but he's no longer present in the way he was in the garden, which is presence in which you were in it, and it made you alive. And when Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden to east of Eden, what that symbolizes is they were sent out of the relational presence of God. They were sent out of the presence of eternal life. And nothing in creation was left untouched. All our lives are radiated by the reality of the curse. So when Paul says that Jesus became a curse... When he became a curse for us, he entered into the exclusion zone. Not only did he enter into the exclusion zone, he entered into the center of the exclusion zone, into the nuclear reactor, if you will. When Jesus uh, begins His ministry and he is baptized by John in the river Jordan, John and Jesus have this really interesting exchange that Mark, or I'm sorry, Matthew records. And Jesus comes to John, asking for baptism. And John says, I need to be baptized by you. And you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this is fitting, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus tells John, this is part of the plan, my baptism. But it's important to understand what John's baptism is about. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance right? It's for sinners to come and to repent and to change their ways. And here comes Jesus, the sinless one, saying, baptize me. And John's like, what? I don't need to be baptized. Jesus' response is revealing, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' baptism was not an admission of his sinfulness, but rather what it was was a complete identification with the human conditioned and all of its accursedness. Jesus didn't simply take on a biological nature as a human being. He actually entered into the full reality of human nature, which is life under the curse, life surrounded surrounded by tragedy, There are two sides to Jesus' baptism. There's the, the light, you might call it the, the side of brightness, and the side of darkness. And we usually talk about the side of brightness, which is when he comes up and he hears the voice of the Father, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends upon him. But there is a dark side to Jesus' baptism. The dark side is this, is it's him going down into the water and what that represents. Jesus' baptism is into our condition of the curse. What that means is he comes and he doesn't simply just stand in solidarity with us or as an example for us and how to deal with the, tr- with the curse, but more deeply it means that he substitutes for us. What Paul means when he says Jesus became a curse for us is that Jesus bore the cumulative weight of the entire curse. He identifies with our sin, not as the one who committed it, but as the one who ultimately is held accountable and suffers for it. All the consequences. Again, John understands this in the Gospel of John. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if the radioactive fallout from a nuclear explosion comes from splitting A single atom. Jesus' accursed death is like a nuclear explosion in reverse. All the fallout that came out originally because of our disobedience, it's like watching it in video reverse, coming back, flowing back in reverse into him. All the accursedness, coming back his direction, but instead of it being us that are standing there, it is him who is receiving it, all the horrible consequences, the disobedience, the evil, the rebellion. In baptism, baptism is how we are spiritually and bodily united with the person of Jesus Christ. It is an identification with his experience. It is being able to receive and hear the voice of the Father saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. But remember that our baptism comes after his baptism. And central to his baptism is that he takes to himself our accursed condition. You could say he was baptized into our sin, he was baptized into our cursedness, he's baptized into our broken marriages, into the conflict, into the abuse. Into the unfaithfulness, into the lying and the cheating and the apathy, all the things <laughs> that we carry, in a sense, he bears. And this is a terrible union and a terrible exchange. The dark mystery of Good Friday is that Jesus stepped into our place of accursedness, not simply as a symbol, but as reality, as he himself were the ones who committed the sins. Again, Paul says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, it says, In the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthana," which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate curse is the curse of being excluded from the presence of God. And the real horror that Jesus experienced on the cross was not the physical pain of torture or the psychological torment. It was the sense of the absence of God, of his presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I'm praying, but you're not listening. You're not responding. I look up, and I don't see heaven. I just see dark clouds. You can imagine the pain of this as the one who is with the Father in all eternity, perfect in union, as a sense that God is not there. You know, it's significant that we, Jesus dies, and there's three days, three days that he's in the grave, and as the Christian tradition, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell, that that time he descends to hell. He goes to the heart of the exclusion zone. Hell is the place where God's presence is absent. (laughs) He goes to the center of that. And why does he go? He goes so we don't have to. He goes to the extremity of a cursedness so that we do not have to. He became a curse in our place. So, brothers and sisters, what was a terrible exchange for Jesus becomes a wonderful exchange for us. He takes our sin, and we take his righteousness. He takes our guilt, we take his forgiveness. He takes our shame, we take his glory. He takes our misery, our sickness, our disease, our death, we take his healing, we take his eternal life. He takes our separation from the Father and he gives us the privilege to be called sons and daughters, (laughs) loved by the Father. And this is why we sing, although not in this service, (laughs) this this, this is why we sing, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul. What wondrous love is this, O my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Amen. Let us.